Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is Key Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already happening online at this moment in time, we do keep an eye on the chat room. So if you have a question, feel free to post it, and we'll do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, I know there are many of you who are on the go and you cannot continue to listen online. So you just need to call in directly by dialing 347-202-0227. And that way you can listen via phone or, you know, if you're driving, please be sure to use Bluetooth while you're traveling about and you won't miss any of the show. Now I have a question for everyone out there. Do you experience anxiety? I bet you anything everybody's saying, yes, I do. Do you wish it wouldn't happen to you? And you're probably answering yes to that as well. But what if you were the cause and the cure of your own physical and emotional distress? Now let me remove the doubt and say you are the cause as well as the cure of your own physical and emotional distress. My guest tonight has discovered that the biggest barrier to our total health and happiness is ourselves. That's right. It's true. Our negative mindset, and, you know, sometimes it is unconscious. We don't really realize we're being negative, but we are. And it prevents us from dealing positively with all of our stresses, disease, unhappiness. And that is precisely what blocks us from achieving our best possible life. Dr. Grayson is a cutting-edge mind-body-spirit psychologist who began his practice as a psychoanalyst. He is a pioneer in spirituality-based mind-body energy psychology and the founder of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York. He draws upon quantum physics, neuropsychology, the major psychotherapies, subtle energies, and new power therapies, which include EMDR, EFT, and TFT in his practice. He created Synergetic Therapy, and he is the author of Mindful Loving, and the new physics of love. And tonight, we're so very fortunate because he is here to discuss his new book, Use Your Mind to Heal Your Body. So, Dr. Grayson, welcome to the show, and thank you so, so much for joining us. How are you being tonight? I'm being well, thank you. It's good to be with you on the show. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. I'm so excited. I love your book. <laughs> well, we've, maybe I should uh, shift it for a moment because when you say the title of the book is Use Your Mind to Heal Your Body, uh, I purposely reverse that in this title. Uh, yes. Use your body to heal your mind. And I uh, apologize. And, and that's I knew okay that. because you that's did it the way people normally normally think and normally talk. That's and, right, which was, which was wrong on my part. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no problem. No problem. But it gives us a chance to emphasize that shift. Because if we can read our bodies, 
as being expressions of our subconscious mind, which is the way researcher Candace Pert uh, described it when she was doing research down at the National Institute of Health and discovered the role of the neuropeptides as the instant chemical messaging system in the body. And that's how the mind-body connection takes place. But she described the body as, as the subconscious mind. And so reading our signals in our bodies can actually give us clues as to what's going on in our subconscious mind and bring it into awareness so we can deal with it. Whereas most people think of symptoms as something we've got to get rid of, I think of it as more as something we need to translate. And mm. that's why I would have that title. And, and it's a great title. And I have to tell you, there are not a lot of books out there that are as complete as yours. And I read a lot of books, but I haven't found any that are quite as complete. It's, it's not just informative. It's easy to understand. It's filled with uh, tests or exercises or processes to help anybody in almost any situation. And it helps the reader get to the core of their issue, but it goes further than that because it helps you to actually resolve it. And yet it's not academic. It's, it's enjoyable to read. It gets right to the point without a whole lot of fluff, so you don't have to kind of figure out what it is you're trying to do. It's just very straightforward. One of the interesting things that I first read in your book was when you spoke about the Black Plague and you asked if it could be that the doctors and nurses in Europe at that time did not die because their compassion and desire to help others made their immune system stronger. Even though and, they were the know, ones who were most exposed. Exactly. And, and I believe that that's true because I think that we're all connected through our hearts and when you're truly living from your heart, you don't really get sick because you're in such a good place. However, so many people do get sick, and I can't help but notice that it seems to stem from the negative thoughts that they continually perpetuate in their lives. And, you know, it might be unknowingly, but still the negativity is there. And when I say this to people, they don't believe me. So I'm going to ask you, because you're the expert and, and you'll know, how is it that negative thoughts and beliefs actually make people sick? Well, there's so much evidence in so many ways to show that every thought is having an effect, that it's mm -hmm. not innocuous. There's no such thing as a private thought because of the whole idea of the non-local mind we've discovered in the new physics and quantum mechanics, that mind is all interconnected. And, uh, and so even physicist uh, Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist in the middle of the last century, says, the number of minds I've been able to observe in the universe is one. Well, if that's so, if mind is really just one, it's not limited to my skull, and it's not contained there, and they're not private thoughts that are only in my mind, because they're radiating outward, and the first place we feel them is throughout our body, and in our cells. One simple little thing that I like to do to demonstrate this in my, when I do my seminars around the country, uh, I'll have two people come up, and I'll ask uh, them to just... Uh, 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 think some kind of uh, positive thought, a loving thought, a compassionate thought, where the heart just reached out to somebody and they just wanted to be of help without expecting anything back in return. Then I asked them to extend their arm to me and let me press down on it while they resist as much as they can while they're thinking that thought. And if they're thinking that compassionate thought, I find invariably, without exception, people's arms become incredibly strong that I can really press with both hands as hard as I can, and it still won't go down. And I, I work out pretty regularly, and so I'm pretty strong. And But even <clears throat> even a, a little old lady who hasn't done much exercise, when she's thinking the compassionate thought, her arm also becomes very strong. 
on the other hand, when somebody thinks a thought of anger, of resentment, of fear, of worry, of jealousy, any of those kind of thoughts, and they, I ask them to resist as much as they can while I press down on their arms, the arm immediately becomes so weak I can push it down with one finger, no mm-hmm. matter how much they've been working out. That tells us something really important, that the body is resonating instantly, you know, what we're, what we're thinking. That's truth and untruth in muscle testing, correct? That's, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two ways I think you use the muscle testing, one is to, if you use the muscle testing about to determine whether something that your hunch is, or uh, say there were traumas at age two that are affecting my problems today that need to be cleared, then you press the arm. If it becomes strong, you know it's to be, it is true. And if it goes weak, you know, no, that's not true. There were not traumas at age two that are affecting my problems today. That's one way to use it. The other way is to show that each thought is making you stronger or weaker. Mm-hmm. And it resonates instantly in the body, in the body cells, and in the musculature. And if it's doing it in the musculature, uh, showing strength or weakness, it's not limited just to the muscles. It goes in every cell, through every system throughout the body. And so it affects the cardiovascular system. If you're thinking a negative thought for a little bit, your heart rate will stop being coherent and its variability to start being irregular for a lot of people. Uh, on the other hand, too, if you start thinking on anxious thoughts and negative thoughts, you start to feel a little disturbance down in your digestive system. Those things can happen instantly. I think of one guy, for example, I worked with some years ago who was a traveling salesman, and he had irritable bowel syndrome, which means that he'd have to get severe diarrhea uh, instantly and have to run to the bathroom before he really uh, had a catastrophe there. Mm. And... Uh, and he was concerned about dealing with that. So we were talking about thoughts. We worked on that for a few sessions. And one day he came in and says, Henry, I think I really got it now. He said, I've discovered that if I allow a negative thought to linger in my mind more than 30 seconds, I'm in trouble. I've got to run for the bathroom like crazy. On mm-hmm. the other hand, if I catch that thought before 30 seconds are up and I change my thought focus, my stomach goes right back to being totally at peace. And Isn't thought, that amazing? That really reflects <laughs> the whole thing. That really tells us that it's in the muscles, it's in the digestive system, it's in the, in the heart, you know, the cardiovascular system, it's in every system in the body. And so and, this whole idea that mind and body are separate is totally, you know, an illusion. As even Einstein put it, just the idea that we are separate or anything is separate, he says, is an optical illusion. It stands to reason because everything is connected. So one thing would, in fact, have to affect another. Exactly. And everything's energy, including your thoughts. I think that's probably the most difficult thing people sometimes have to understand is that your thought is actually energy or even that they are energy. They don't necessarily understand that, yeah, you're just energy. And so you can move it, manipulate it, change it, transform it, transmute it. And the more you stay in the positive or the light side of it, the healthier you're going to be. Exactly. But sometimes, yeah, I think sometimes people, for instance, your chapter, um, uh, Stop the Flat Earth. I, I love that one, too. I can't tell you how many times I speak with people about their limiting beliefs, and I use the earth, you know, as, as an analogy and say, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people thought the earth was flat. You know, and then some guy decided to go out. His name was Columbus. And, you know, and, and he decided that, you know, it's a sphere, people. It's a sphere. And, you know, but people wonder, what's that got to do with their healing? So 
you know, my question to you is, would you mind please telling our audience, what does an individual's view of the world have to do with healing? I think it has a lot to do with it, but people don't necessarily agree with me. And uh, I'd say a large part of our current medical system doesn't really think about that either or consider it. Uh, most of it and most of our thinking in the world is based on a science of 350 years ago of Isaac mm. And Isaac Newton's view of the world, he was a brilliant man. Uh, and I don't want to put him down in any way that way. And he brought a lot into awareness that has been very helpful to us. But he had a view of the world where the only thing that is real is what you can experience with your five senses. And if you experience it with your vision and your touch and your uh, sound and whatever, that that's what the world is. And he believed that if you knew enough about the past, then you could predict the future. Uh, because you could take that, but what it is is really just we're cogs in a machine then. There's no place for free will. There's no place for consciousness. We're just railroaded on a train, and if our past was one way, then the odds are that this will be the same way down the road, which is what a lot of physicians do when they make prognoses. They say, you know, okay, your parents had this, so it's a good chance you'll get it, or you've had this going on for several years now. Okay, what typically happens is such and such and such and such. And... Uh, and so you hear those kinds of statements made all the time in the medical profession. And what that's, what's different in the quantum worldview is that, as you were pointing out, there's no real matter here that to continue that way. And that consciousness and energy play the most dominant role in the whole universe. Now, why do I say that? Remember when we were kids in school, uh, the teachers used to draw a picture of the atom on the chalkboard for us. Mm-hmm. And and the electron, proton, and neutron, it looked like planets revolving around the sun. And we were, we were thought that, that was, some of that was matter inside the atom. Now they crush the atoms in the laboratory, and as they crush it down, they find there's nothing there but a spark of energy. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about it, if my, my body is made up of atoms, there's nothing there but energy. It's 99.999% empty space, just energy. And the same thing is true about the rest of the world. And, of course, living in this world, I know if I'm, I'm sitting at a desk that has sharp corners here, and if I got up and bump my knee against the corner of it, it's going to hurt. At the same time, I know it's just uh, molecules of dancing energy inside, and we're perceiving as if it's matter. But, and so we have to learn to live in this world of, ma- of matter and time. But at the same time, we recognize that if our bodies are just dancing energy, just molecules there popping in and out of existence, and it's just energy controlled by information. What physicists tell us, it is consciousness that really rules. And they have trouble defining exactly what that consciousness is. But to say, for example, in the quantum worldview, a quanta is 20,000, 30,000, maybe even 40,000 times smaller than the smallest atom. And that's pretty small because I've never even seen an atom myself. Right. <laughs> and so that's really getting down to the real particles. That's why it's sometimes referred to as particle physics, so they're the tiniest things. But they say that at this particle level, the quanta being so small, that it's very hard to distinguish between matter and energy, that the vibrational level is almost indistinguishable. But what they're saying then, it's consciousness that determines that vibrational level to slow it down enough so it's experienced as what we call matter. That means it's consciousness that rules. And if in our bodies, if it's mostly empty space, it's just dancing energy ruled by consciousness, that means we have a chance to influence what information goes to all those cells. 
what information goes to every part of our body because information is instructing all of our systems to do whatever they do. If 98% of the cells in our body reproduce themselves in one year's time, or when the skin, uh, they reproduce themselves maybe in about a couple of weeks' time. Now, why do they keep showing up in ways that we recognize each other? They show up because it responds to the same information. As you replace it, you come back in this way, and this description is imprinted there. So that's what would happen. But what if, on the other hand, we're sick, we have a diagnosis that's been repeated, and those cells have been reproducing themselves as disturbed cells, diseased cells, is a better word for disease, the ones that have not experienced experiencing ease. And if that's been going on for a while, then that information gets programmed in, that's the information system, as those cells pop out of existence, new ones come back in, they replace themselves in the same fashion, unless we are able to change the informational instruction that's given in our bodies. And that's where the thoughts come in, that's where clearing out traumas come in, that's where clearing out negative beliefs about ourselves, about what's possible and not possible, what we deserve or don't deserve, that's where all that comes in. So we have immense power that we don't really own and embrace fully to give information, to control, have more control in what happens in our bodies than we've ever thought or believed or even imagined. And we can get help from other people like energy therapists, someone like myself, who can help you with that because if you yourself do not know how to, to bring in those thoughts and make the changes in your body, I know that as an energy therapist I can invoke energy and bring it into the person so that they're mm-hmm. calibrated. And when they're calibrated, it's easier for them to heal. But they still have to play a role. And I'll tell them, you have to be on my team. You can't just come in here and say, you know, it's not going to work. You have to know that you're part of this process. And I think that's really important. Well, because what you're doing is a very important step for many, many people. is the thing to see that something else happens, not just in a linear way. You take the medicine and that's going to fix it. But something happens energetically and with consciousness, and even though it's controlled by you at first, they get mm-hmm. a sense that there's something that happens in the universe. Then right. the next, next step, once they really begin to embrace that, at some point they might say, oh, maybe I can do this myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true. And, and most of us the... have to wade into the water step by step. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I and and it, w- it will come to a time when I think there will be way more energy work being done. I mean, it's it's in hospitals now, but I think it'll be even more accepted and covered by insurance. That kind of tells everybody that it's more mainstream when things are covered by insurance than it is right now, even though there are so many uh, mainstream practices that don't understand the how of, of it working. I, I think probably maybe medical doctors will start to be looking at quantum physics and quantum mechanics as part of their medical academic program in order to really understand this fully. Would you agree with that? I think that has to be the next step because I yeah. think our, our medical system is just becoming so costly and there's so many harmful side effects and there's so many uh, deaths that are caused. One of our leading causes of death now is medical intervention mm-hmm. in the country. And, it's true. <laughs> and that, that's really hard for us to face because it's either interactions of medicine or side effects of medicines or, or doctor or hospital errors or, you know, things of that nature that are happening. And it's actually literally one of the main causes of death. And so uh, 
uh, if we can recognize that, then that helps inspire us to look for alternative ways that are not going to create problems. I know my uh-huh. goal is to, since I've been a therapist for many decades, and I started out as a psychoanalyst, but I realized there was a lot of there was a value there, but it didn't didn't deal with every problem area for different people. And I've been searching across the board. And my my main criterion had been I wanted to learn what would help people be free of their suffering, emotional, spiritual, and physical. Uh-huh. And as long as it was legal, it was ethical, and had no harmful side effects. And those are the three criteria I've used as I searched for ways that we can help. And, and I'm afraid that not, that has ceased to be practiced in largely in the medical community mm. because it has a lot of harmful side effects, and so many of them are not really dealt with. And we have to search for other other reasons because by having the side effects, you create some more illnesses. You have to prescribe some more drugs, and you're actually boosting, you know, the the drug industry profits. That's sure, they're the ones running healthcare anyway, so they don't want to do it and look at anything else, you know. Exactly, and as <laughs> the and as the uh, there was a, uh, a a clip that was caught somehow by one of the CEOs of one of the major drug companies. I think it was Merck, but I'm not sure about that right now. But it's one of the top six drug companies, probably speaking to an investor's meeting. But they caught him and filmed him saying with a smirk on his face, "My goal is to have every human being on Earth." taking at least one medication. <laughs> and I thought, that's not saying I'm concerned with people. It's not no. concerned with eliminating suffering. I'm not concerned with helping people be well and happy. I'm concerned only with making the profits. And if we can have everybody taking one medication, that's going to create two or three more illnesses, and they'll take three or four times the medications. Then that will cause still even more, which is what we're doing to our elderly, elderly now. Like a that I was talking to recently says, people come into his office, he asks about what medications are on before he works with him. He says pretty much everybody over the age of 60 is taking at least seven or eight medications. Mm-hmm. I believe it. And I believe it. And he says it's just horrendous because mm-hmm. then there's so many side effects that are there that you can't possibly keep up with, and you're just kind of floundering and weakening the person. So look at the commercials on TV. You hear a commercial for a drug, and half the time I don't even know what problem it's supposed to solve because when I hear the side effects, I think you might be better off just having the disease and just not even taking this pill because really, what are you buying? What are you getting from it, you know? It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, A lot of um, cancer patients that take, I cannot remember the name of the drug, and I, and I should, uh, it's an anti-nausea pill. And the anti-nausea pill, and I, and I had to take it at one point, and I went down to get it. First of all, it's $90 a pill. There was one in the wow. bottle. And I said to the person, there's only one in here. She said, that's all you're getting. And I said, okay. And she said, do you have a question for the pharmacist? And I said, actually, I do. And so he came over, and there was a gentleman standing behind me, and he could hear everything. And I, I said to the uh, pharmacist, have you read the side effects on this? And he said, no, not really. He says, do you have a question? And I said, yes. I said, this is a pill for not, it's an anti-nausea pill. And he said, yes. I said, one of the side effects is nausea and vomiting, and it's $90. So what am I buying? Don't you think it's a little oxymoronic? And he just looked at me, and the guy behind me started laughing. And I said, no, seriously, it is oxymoronic, right? It's not just me, right? And he said, no, it's not just you. And I said, I I want my $90 back. You can keep the pill. And he said, well, you know, it's supposed to help with the nausea. I said, well, let me ask you this. It's one pill. How long does it last? He says, about six hours. I said, what good is that going to do me? Really? You know, what good is it going to do me? And I thought, 
oh, my goodness, this is crazy stuff. So I yeah. left, you yeah. know, and I just said, I'll continue to reiki myself and make sure that I don't get nauseous, which worked for me. Um, right. And I, yeah. I find it works for other people as well. But you're right. All these drugs out there lead to other things so that you get to take more drugs if you want. Yes, and that all of this does another thing, which is even more harmful. It makes us stay stuck in the illusion that we're separate and little and powerless. Mm -hmm. It makes us stay stuck in that realm to feel like our sicknesses are all happening to us from something outside and that the cure is outside, both of which supports our feelings of our false identity of little and separate and weak and powerless and victims. That's true. And and I think that uh, along with that, people need to understand that once you take your power back and you realize that you're capable, your body knows what to do. It knows how to heal. It knows how to heal. You just have to kind of like program it to do so. So this is actually a good point to ask you about the uh, the different tools that we can use for healing and staying healthy that you talk about in your book. Why don't, we, why don't you tell us about a few of those? Well, I would kind of give a little background first because... Mm-hmm. Uh, what we need to use them for uh, would be looking at where the beginnings of illnesses may occur so you can have some effect on that. And what I find is is that, well, the statistics show, for example, that if we have a lot of painful experiences in, in early childhood or in our childhood, uh, mm-hmm. there's a high correlation then uh, with people who get serious illnesses in early adult life if those traumas are not cleared out. And most people have not occasion to do it or don't even know that it can be done. And most of the parents or pediatricians don't know that that can be done or even attend to it. And so that is programmed in. So if a person is rejected, when a person is abandoned, a person is beaten, a person is molested, a person is uh, ignored, a person is uh, uh, criticized a lot, on and on it goes. Uh, All of this kind of thing gets stored in the survival brain called the limbic system. And, of course, when it's there, it takes little to reactivate that. And when it's activated, we start pouring out stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. When those are poured out, then that uh, changes our mood. It reduces the serotonin balance in the brain. It also diverts blood away from our stomachs uh, because it diverts the blood flow to the arms and legs for fight or flight. And so then our stomach doesn't process the food and get the nutrients. And so all of that just sets up more problems or it changes the serotonin balance in the brain, which makes us depressed. Mm-hmm. It constricts the blood flow from the brain, which makes us dumber. So we're literally dumbed down in, in our creativity and in our problem-solving abilities. So all of that sets us up for our bodies to be weaker and therefore to get more illnesses. So one thing we need to do is to, and I have a questionnaire in a book that helps people begin to identify at what places they've experienced different kind of painful experiences or traumas. And it might be during the remembered times, then we need to check out even pre-memory. Because one amazing thing is most personality theories say we form our personalities by age five. But how, who, how many of us remember much before age five? I know I have, I have four or five memories prior to age, you know, prior to age six. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't remember very much at all. So how we did, we were required to write an operating system for our lives when we do nothing about how to do it. We downloaded things from our parents, positive pieces. Yes, we learned how to walk on two feet. We learned language. We learned a whole bunch of things, how to function, those downloads, which are good. But we downloaded their fears. We downloaded their projections. We downloaded their ways of dealing with situations, with problems, and downloaded the ways of dealing with conflicts with each other. 
uh, whether I live in anxiety or anger or fear or, or distancing, all that we downloaded, and but we don't even know where it came from hardly. And so one good news about the muscle testing we were talking about before, we can use that to identify what happened at what age, whether there were uh, dif- difficulties, say, in the, the first year of life, I wasn't held very much, I wasn't nurtured, or my mom was experiencing a crisis with her because her mother died, or my mother and father were fighting, or whatever, and and so she couldn't be at, at peace and loving and kind, and so I programmed in that, even maybe in my infancy, and so on. That kind of thing can happen. We can use muscle testing to ascertain where these traumas begin, whether they're even in genetic memories, because we used to think that genes were all locked in and were immutable. Now there's a new field called epigenetics, that is what's above the genes. And that means right. the environment can change the genes. And environment is not just a physical environment, but even more powerful is the consciousness environment. That can be up to 50 to 100 times more powerful in affecting cells or affecting the genes. And, that, and the genes are just simply encoding some information in the DNA anyway. And so if we consider it that, why couldn't it be changed? If it's just encoded information, we change that in our computers all the time. We change right. the information that's encoded. And our brains are the prototype of the computer. So all of this is going on. And if we can identify where all these traumas or these painful experiences were, and then systematically go back, you know, not just a one-time sitting for a half hour, those would be useful for current traumas, but if we can identify the whole range of them that we experienced, and systematically go through clearing them one by one by one, or categories of them, or certain groupings of ages, and we can get those all cleared, then we're setting ourselves up to be much healthier in itself just from that, because the the limbic system, the survival brain, and the stress hormones can calm down. They can be more at ease. Then there's no more dis-ease coming out of that, which is a wonderful word, I think, to use that way. Mm-hmm. Out of those negative experiences, then we start drawing conclusions about life or about ourselves. The world is safe, it's dangerous. Uh, I'm loved, I'm not lovable. Uh, It's safe, or I'm dangerous, or I'm not safe here. Or I'm worthy, or I'm not worthy. I'm deserving of help, I'm not. Or the belief that, no, I can be in charge of this, I can make it go away. No, I can't, I'm just a victim. I'm powerless. All of these are belief systems that we play out. Or we have another belief in the family. I have to get the same illness my mother did or my father did or my grandmother did. And I have to die at the same time, same age. All those are just beliefs. And those beliefs are encodings of information which then play themselves out. Just like your computer program will only print out what's in the program until it's changed. And that, that programming that, that we've done at such an early age or that came in with us because sometimes there were things encoded that we didn't really do ourselves. It's just kind of like taught and encoded there prior to. That's, that's why the past painful experiences influence or continue to influence so much, uh, so much later on in our lives, sometimes even decades later. But if we can reprogram that, we can actually, you don't, you don't forget it, but you get past it and you move on. Well, you don't forget it uh, uh, if it's a remembered trauma, no. But what you do is you reduce reduce the emotional charge on it. And mm-hmm. you reduce the paired association to it. It's sort of like if you had a trauma, if you were the caveman, and you were bitten uh, by a tiger out walking through the jungle one day, and you managed to get uh, survive. And then every time you walk in the jungle and you see something that looks like yellow and brown, black stripes, 
It could be just simply sun shining through the leaves of the tree, hitting some bark on the trunk of a tree. But Mm -hmm. that caveman would run for the cave, rolling the stone over it. And maybe he'd do that the rest of his life, because he'd once bitten, not just twice shy, is the old saying, but as neuroscientists tell me, it's up to 15 to 18 times more active now than it needs to be, that part of our brain. And so that's why we need to clear out these old traumas. And what they are is just encoding some information saying it's a part of the limbic system called the hippocampus that that identifies something, experience we have, and it says to us, no, this is safe or that's dangerous. Life's at stake here. And it gives that signal. And it gives a signal then to the amygdala, another part of the limbic system, which starts pouring out stress hormones, you know, if it's uh, not safe. And that mechanism goes so automatically and would make us sick unless we clear out that information. Those encodings of information is really what's cleared out. And the way we do that uh, is through some methods that I find extremely useful and most powerful I've found in my decades of practice. Uh, and I've studied most of the major therapies. But the ones i found that are most effective for these kind of things, clearing out traumas, clearing out negative belief systems, installing new belief systems, and so on, are some of the what, what I call the meridian-based therapies. That is, mm-hmm. based on the energy meridians in the body, and that's the, the system we learned from the old ancient Chinese system of acupuncture. Now, we right. don't have needles for that, but what in the Chinese system, they believed that there were meridians of energy that ran through the body, but each one was attached to a different organ. And that organ represented a set of ne- negative emotions and the opposite positive emotions. And they believed if you stimulated that that meridian, some point on there, some acupressure point or acupuncture point, if you stimulated that one, it would reduce the negative, and naturally there is a positive one that would emerge. And so borrowing from that system, I find that we can place our fingers on different acupressure points, on my eyebrows, the outside edge of the eye, under the eye, under the nose, under the bottom lip, on the collarbone, under the arm, bottom of the rib cage, places like that, and with the statement, I now release, depending on what emotions connected to that meridian. And by the way, we used to think they just made up those meridians, and now we know with high technology you can photograph them. We know they're actually there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if you place your fingers on your eyebrow, for example, after you've been focusing on the problem that you want to release, and say, I release all fear related to this trauma, and take a couple of slow, deep breaths and you reflect on it. And I find the breath work helps focus this, helps calms down the limbic system too. Then you bring your fingers over outside the edge of the eye, and I release all anger, resentment, and rage related to this trauma, and take a couple of slow, deep breaths. I find what happens is that some of these will apply to your specific painful or traumatic experience. Others won't, but you're covering them all just in case. And then I find that sometimes feelings that we thought we didn't have connected with it will suddenly come into awareness as you touch that acupressure point and state the emotion you're releasing. And it puts it in touch with a person to feel it as they're letting it go, not to focus on it and wallow in it like the old forms of therapy where you talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And we know now that that may actually just rehearse the trauma and it may actually activate the limbic system more to just talk about it. That doesn't mean that some talking is not useful for some people. To share something for the first time that's been a secret and so on can be very helpful with a caring person. But many, many times, and maybe even more of the time, it often just rehearses the trauma. And so these methods help not to rehearse it, but they help to just release it and let it go. You go through 
a round or two or three of this and the clearing. And I find if you evaluate it on a 10-point scale, if the disturbance was a 10 to do with this trauma of my father beating me or my parents uh, uh, beating each other or my mother always yelling at me with abusive language or whatever, that if I find that my disturbance initially was a 10 and I go through a round of it, we reevaluate with the muscle testing, and it might be down to a 7 or 6. Do another round, it comes down to like a 3 or 4. You do another round, oh, it just feels all gone. The person feels at peace, feels relaxed. You can see it in their face. They can talk about it, the system now, they focus on that particular idea, but they don't get, it doesn't make them disturbed anymore. That means then when they experience something similar happening around, they're less likely to be as reactive to it. And their immune system is likely to stay stronger because the limbic system isn't getting active and disturbing it. And coupled with that, you know, doing that is great and people will be able to help themselves. But I think one of the other things, and you talk about it in your book, is just the awareness factor of how you speak, you know, your thoughts come out of your mouth. And we sometimes we use our filter and sometimes we don't. And usually we use our filter when it comes to speaking to other people, but we don't always use our filter for ourselves and we'll say things like, oh, this is killing me, or I'm an idiot, I can't right. believe I did that, or why can't I, you know, right. and those are really reinforcing ourselves and, and programming our, our own computer to believe what we are speaking. Yes, if I use the language like that, my back is killing me, my neck mm-hmm. is bothering me, and so on, what we're doing is attributing viciousness to some body part. What we're not seeing is it's my thought itself that's the vicious one. It's, mm. not, it's not separate out there somewhere, which we do all the time, thinking something outside that caused it. Somebody sneezed on me, that's why I got a cold. No, it's because I caught the cold. That language is useful. You have to reach out <laughs> and grab something to catch it. That's we don't, true. Otherwise, it just drops off by the wayside. I haven't caught a cold from anybody for about 35 years now. Uh, I got one once because I needed it during that time. Okay, yep. But that's the only time I got one because I needed it. And I could see very clearly my emotional state was such that I needed it at that point until I got in touch with what it was about, then I could let it go. Right. But the thing is, is that if we can recognize that we have the power to deal with all those things, with our thoughts, uh, because ancient wisdom recognized this, you know, hundreds or even thousands of years ago. The ancient proverb uh, in the book of Proverbs in the Bible is that as a man thinketh, so he is. And then the Buddha came along in 600 years B.C. and says, you are what you think. With your thoughts, you make your whole entire world. And then 600 years after that, Jesus of Nazareth came along and said, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And then we have cognitive therapy that's been developed in the last century, saying your thoughts are a major factor in creating problems in your life, especially your anxiety and depression, and so on. Thoughts have been recognized as a key part. But we also recognize, too, that sometimes it's harder for us to change the thoughts. Sometimes we can work on the thoughts and use processes for it and change them. On the other hand, sometimes it's really hard. They seem intractable, and it seems like that uh, the tail's wagging the dog rather than the dog wagging the tail. Mm-hmm. And at those times, that usually means that those uncleared traumas and the uncleared negative beliefs are driving those thoughts so powerfully that it's hard to put the brakes on them. 
I think of it as being sort of like if you've got a big train of 100 cars and it's chugging along at 70 miles an hour and you put on the brakes because you want to stop it. But you're going to have trouble stopping it if at the same time you've got four diesel engines pushing as hard as they can on that train at the same time. And I think that's what we often experience around our thoughts. We're trying to stop them while we've still got the engines of the past traumas and the past beliefs pushing them so hard that it's hard to put the brakes on them. And that's why we need to do, I think, the whole picture in our self right. is clearing our traumas, clearing our negative beliefs, and then changing our thought systems and our thought patterns, then installing new beliefs to live by, like you put in new software in your computer, open up some new neural pathways, which is what forms new habits, because a new pathway gives a new information. And we put all that in place, and we start looking at things with different interpretations. Then put all that together, we have a have a formula that creates so much more health and healing and happiness. And that's actually your book. You put it all together for us because it goes just like you said. The way that Dr. Grayson is speaking to us right now is exactly the way that the book is written. It's so easy to understand. And there's a checklist to identify negative beliefs. And it goes on. There are tests. There are questions. There are rituals. There are uh, things that you can do. It's incredible all the stuff that's in here that you can do. I had to read the book for the interview, so I wasn't able to actually do the exercises, which I do want to go back and do because I thought, this is really interesting, particularly for, and I'm, I'm going to guess, there are people who are outwardly very positive, everything seems to be going well, but or, or you think it is, you know, to other people it seems to be going well, but for themselves, they're not able to move as far forward as they would like to, whether it's in a relationship or a job, you know, their profession or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those people have a block somewhere, and they just don't know it. Yes. You know, that's a more difficult person to try to – that's why I think your book is good for – especially for somebody like that, because if you go through the book and do the exercises, automatically – you can't help but release those blocks that maybe you don't even know you have. Well, it brings up a lot of those that have not been in our conscious awareness. The exercises mm. help bring them into to awareness so we can do the clearings. And that's that's the purpose because so many of them we're not conscious of, but those checklists or the self-awareness questionnaire I have in there and so on, or even just there, there are six questions that I'd like to ask myself too anytime I get a symptom. And I live Yes, those were great. But I might mm -hmm. just list those here, that any time I get the slightest symptom in my body, I'll ask myself these six questions, because I know if I can get the answer to them and deal with that answer differently, then my symptom usually goes away, sometimes very quickly, sometimes in a few hours or days. Sometimes I need a ritual to make it happen over a few weeks if it's a bigger symptom, but sometimes in a few, just in a few minutes. And what right. those questions are, and by the way, these questions need to be asked with total sincerity, not blaming yourself for any of the answers, because if I blame myself for my sickness, then I'm just going to create more guilt and I'm going to stay sicker. But I have to approach it as I'm the same energy I use to make myself sick as the energy I can convert right now toward self-healing, but without blame and without guilt. There's never, never, never a place for guilt and self-blame for our illness. And I want to stress that one so strongly because our mm -hmm. ego mind always wants us to blame ourselves or others. Yes. But anyway, the questions are, if I start to get a symptom of any kind, why might I need this? Why might I need it now? 
What would he get from me? What would he get me out of doing? Is there some emotion that I've not dealt with directly and constructively that might be in this symptom, be expressed in this symptom? Or another question is, I'll ask myself, what metaphor could be expressed in it? You know, this, this, is, this problem has been back-breaking to me. Okay, that gives me a clue already as to why I might have the back pain, huh? Or my mm-hmm. heart breaking might give me some clue as to why I'm having some heart trouble and so on. And then the last question might be, is there a family belief or a tribal mind belief that could be bringing this illness? Like, I need to get this illness because my mother did and so on. Or mm-hmm. family believes everybody has to catch it from each other. Um, right. So on. But I find if I get those, get the answer, the most irrational answer to that question, that's a very useful first step, but it's not sufficient by itself. I need to be sure that I'm going to find an alternate way of dealing with that issue that's more constructive rather than paying the price of keeping the symptom. And so if I do that, then make a full commitment to deal with it differently, then that's when I find the healing occurs. Mm-hmm. Starts to go. I might say, for example, I, I might give your listeners one example of about uh, 23, 24, no, about 25 years ago now, I guess it was. I had a, such a severely degenerated disc in my back uh, that I could not move a centimeter in the bed without feeling like I was being jabbed with an ice pick and shocked with electrical energy. <clears throat> and the, the doctor said the x-ray showed so much degeneration of that disc that uh, that I probably would not walk again without back surgery. Mm, and uh, and the, the problem was that 68% of the time you were worse off after back surgery. So to take a 30% chance of feeling better and a 75, 70% chance that I'd feel worse off, I didn't want that. And so I started to ask myself those questions about that as I had done in the past around getting colds or sore throats. It's the first time I used it for anything really big or serious. And I asked myself those questions, and I came up with several things I needed to deal with. There was one person I felt betrayed by, and I felt hurt and angry. I needed to deal with that issue inside myself and to talk it out with that person. There's somebody else I had a conflict with I needed to deal with. And I was angry about that in that situation. And I'd stuffed down my anger and not dealt with the hurt and fear underneath the anger. Uh, Thirdly, I needed to change some lifestyle things. I realized that I'd been doing athletics most of my life, but I never stretched. And I realized as well that uh, I needed to make some other changes. I never had some way of dealing with stress. And I realized that if I was really disturbed about something, well, I was never really a heavy drinker consistently, but if I was really upset, I'd go make myself a stiff scotch, you know, a double scotch and drink it to try Mm. to deal with that stress. And I realized I need to make some real lifestyle changes here as well as dealing with those people. So I made a commitment that I was going to deal with each of those people is just the first opportunity I could create and get mobilized to go speak to. I made a commitment to start a regular practice of yoga to do the stretching. I decided I would have a start a regular practice of meditation. Instead of uh, dealing with stress in other ways, I would calm my mind. I would sit and observe my thoughts, and I'd follow my breath. I would let my whole system calm down through that regular practice. We know that's a highly effective way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And I decided I would do those things, and I made a firm commitment with myself that I knew I would keep. You know, from that moment, I started feeling better and better. Within a few days, I was able to get up and go to work. 
Within a few more days or weeks, I was getting around pretty naturally. Two months later, I was skiing in Colorado. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was turning it into a physical therapy to increase it there. I would ski 100 yards, and I'd stop, and I'd relax, and I'd imagine my whole body just being healing. Then I'd ski another 100 yards, and by the end of the week, I was even better. And mm-hmm. uh, then what happened about six or eight years ago, I went to my uh, internist for just a routine uh, physical checkup, and I like to go for those occasionally, not to find, try to find out what's wrong, but I want to go and have the proof of showing how healthy I am. Right. <laughs> I prefer that attitude about it. Yes, absolutely. I agree. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, he convinced me I needed to have a lung, uh, an x-ray of my lungs because he'd not done one for over a decade. Finally, he talked me into it, which I didn't really want to do because of the radiation, but he talked me into it finally. And he came back and says, your lungs are fine, Henry. And I thought, yes, I know. I knew that before. <laughs> and he says, but you won't believe this. He says, that, that degenerated disc of yours. Uh, it, it's, uh, he was stuttering around about this whole thing. <laughs> that disc, you won't believe it. It's regenerated. That's not supposed to happen. It's a miracle. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it's regenerated. And I thought, I believe it, and I'm thankful. <laughs> right. And I, and, I, and I realized, well, that happened because I dealt with those issues differently that mm-hmm. I identified, and I kept dealing with them differently through the years that followed. And I reduced the stress in my life, and it was only later that I learned to do these other methods of clearing out traumas and things like that, and which could have probably made it go even faster. But, uh, and, but what and I, it was a miracle. Had worked, and had worked, and it allowed the cells, when they reproduced themselves, to reproduce a healthy disc, not a one that's degenerated. Right, and all of those things, I mean, I think just the fact that you wake up in the morning is a miracle, you know, because you could be taken in the night, you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I just think that they're all miracles. I look at, I try to look at everything as being a miracle rather than looking for these big, huge things that people say are a miracle. There are so many in our lives that we can look at. Everything is, and, you know, it's funny uh, you say two months later you went skiing. You know, yoga and, and meditation are such wonderful practices to put you where you need to be, and that starts the healing process right there because it's not often during the day that you have time to focus as much as you do on your postures and then lay in Shavasana and really meditate, you know, and Mm. to to be able to do that really sets your body up on its way to healing. People who tell me they don't have time to meditate, I'll say to them, you don't have time to not meditate. You really don't. Well, the thing is, I know when I first started, I would – I'd be busy. I'm interested in a lot of things. and like to do a lot of things. And I would have the thought, I'm going to meditate. No, I'm too, I've got to take care of this. I've got to take care of that. Mm-hmm. There was a line from the New Testament that used always pop into my head attributed to Jesus. When it said, seek first, he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added to you. And I mm. thought the, the, the Christian church misinterpreted that and made heaven some geographical place after you die. But his message was, he says, the kingdom of heaven is inside you. It's a state mm. of mind. You know, it's a peaceful state of mind. It's a heavenly state. That's the kingdom of heaven. And that was his message. And I thought, okay, given that, I'll go meditate and see what happens. You know, the amazing thing would happen. Once I'd meditate, I'd find I'd get the task done, whatever it was, much faster and much yeah. better and with more ease than if I'd yep. gone ahead and worked at it. And I'd have more free time. And the studies have shown now with senior executives and corporations, that happens for them. If they meditate, they get more done, higher level of consciousness, more creative solutions, and they have more energy and more time left over. 
the notes. It's true, and nobody believes it until they actually do it. But everybody I know who I've said, you really should just, I don't care if you try one minute a day, set your kitchen timer for one minute, try it for a week, and then up it to two, and just start slow. And they will. And they'll say, you know what, T, those, that one minute felt good, so I went to five. And, and I'd say, well, how, how was five for you? Well, it was a little long, but I still did it. And I keep telling them, it's not something that, you know, meditation is not something that you achieve. It's something you do. It's not, you're not going to sit there totally blank the whole time. Things are going to come into your head. You're going to observe the thoughts, let them go, you know, bring yourself back. Mm-hmm. It just, it allows you to ground, you know. Uh, and, and it's so funny, but everybody I know who's tried it and didn't want to has said the same thing that you just said. They had more time. And I said, yep, isn't it amazing? You find more time because when you're stressed, you're not breathing. So the flow stops. The chi stops in your body. When you're not stressed and you're working on things, mm-hmm. it just keeps going along. And it's a very zen-like state. And as, as new agey as some people think that is, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, that just sounds weird. Try it. Don't knock it till you try it, people. It's a really good thing to do. <laughs> well, one thing we know is that 95% of the people who study meditation stop practicing it. Only 5% continue, which is really... Oh, why is that? I think it's because the ego mind in all of us wants to keep Mm -hmm. us attached to our suffering. And I found in my surveys around the country, all around the U.S., I found in these surveys that 80% of the people uh, both believe they don't, at a deep unconscious level, we just probably get us through the muscle testing and research, that uh, 82% of the people don't believe it's safe to be totally healthy and happy, nor that they deserve it. And the other 18% have one or the other of those two beliefs. When they're in Mm. place, how can then I take the time to meditate? How can I take the time to do yoga? How can I take the time to do these clearings on myself? How can I take the time even to go see somebody for Reiki? You know, if I believe that I don't deserve it and it's not safe, that's going to keep me doing it. That's why doctors have written articles for years upon years about how to get patient compliance. Right. Get them to do what they need to do to stay healthy. And people don't follow that advice. It's a common knowledge that most physicians have. So we you don't know, do what we know how to do. We can read hundreds of books about what to do, but if we don't get rid of those barriers inside us, those traumas and those negative beliefs that are keeping us from using this good information, we're going to still keep making ourselves sick. You know, it's funny because in your book you do mention, and I can't remember the Russian philosopher's name who says, you can call call on human beings to make noble sacrifices for almost any worthy cause. Just don't ask them to give up their suffering. And I laughed when I read that because I thought, ooh, that's so true. People just, you know, they want to suffer. (laughs) Misery likes company, is the old saying. People miserate together about this problem inside or outside. Yeah. And we get attached to that. Then there's another part, sometimes we say, okay, the pain's been enough. I've had it enough. I'm fed up with it. There has to be a better way. And when we come to that point, that's when we're ready to start doing some other practices. Mm. We can get to the point to say, I don't want to stay in this pain and suffering, whether it's emotional or physical. I don't want this anymore. There has to be a better way, and I'm ready to find it, even if it's a strange one or it's a weird one here, like some of these practices might be considered. But I'm ready to find a better way. Right, and you know the, uh, the the wisdom in the ancient Chinese proverb that you that you wrote. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. 
If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. I understand those. If you want happiness for a month, get married. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help someone else. If you want eternal happiness, know yourself. I understood all of them except if you want happiness for a month, get married. And I thought, seriously, just a month? That's just sad. (laughs) Well, for some people it lasts a little longer than a month because then, as I wrote about in my first book, Mindful Loving, you know, we hmm. see that we're in, a, we're in a state of hallucination mostly when we fall in love. And then we have right. to face the reality of who we are, and the other is, and have to learn to do what what I call genuine love, mm-hmm. uh, rather than just the romantic love. Have to love well, people we'll have to have with, back with for their I'd like to have you back on that show. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. And then there was there's one thing I wanted to read in your book that that you wrote, uh, Chapter Ten, Rituals for Self Healing. Uh, the the start of it says, "You are where your thoughts are, so be sure that where your thoughts are, are where you want to be." <laughs> and yes. I thought that is really neat because that says it all in a nutshell. Yeah. You know it. If you really, if if every time you have a thought and you think and you catch yourself and you have that awareness, you can immediately change the thought thought and negate what you just said negatively. You can negate it. Well, one little uh, tool that I could just share with people right now that people would use it with to stop the negative thoughts is any time you have a negative thought, take your hand and bring it up over the upper chest, lay it flat on the chest, and move it around and rub the upper chest in a circular fashion, going clockwise, looking on from the outside. And then say phrases like that. I deeply love and accept myself, even though I'm feeling so angry right now. Or I deeply love and accept myself, even though I'm feeling anxious or fearful right now. Or I deeply love and accept myself, even though, and you fill in the blank, whatever it is, even though I started to focus on this negative thought, I still deeply love and accept myself, even if I wanted to believe this negative thought and you do that five or ten times, you usually break right into the thought. It doesn't keep snowballing and getting bigger Mm -hmm. as it rolls down the hill. And so that's a very useful little technique people can use. Some people have come to me after I've taught it to them. They'll come back the next week. I've been doing this all week long. Am I going to wear a hole in my chest? (laughs) (laughs) And I assure them that not. They're just going to feel better. (laughs) That's just great. No harmful side effects. That is a great tip, and, and unfortunately, we're at the top of the hour. I, I, this has been so informative and wonderful. I've loved spending this time with you, Dr. Grayson. Yeah, uh, you know, before we go, though, I'd love it if you would tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your seminars, how to purchase your book, anything else that you'd like to tell us. Well, they can go to my, my website, which is just henrygrayson.com, spelled with an A, G-R-A-Y-S-O-N, henrygrayson.com. Uh, you can purchase the book from Amazon, which is where most people go these days, or online with Barnes & Noble. Some bookstores carry it, but they don't do as much of that these days since people don't go to bookstores that much. But mm. uh, So you can find more about my work and my website and uh, these tools that I describe in the book. You can also downline, download my demonstrations of them from my website and use those to practice them to help you get used to using them. And so... Uh, I would recommend that you just go there and free of charge, and no charge at all for you to just download and you download them and use them. And, and I'm going to recommend after that they immediately go out and get the book, Use Your Body to Heal Your Mind, because it is an incredible book. It takes you from the very basics all the way through, and you will see a difference immediately upon reading this book and doing some of the exercises. I so very much appreciate your taking time to join us, Dr. Grayson. This was so insightful and so informative. Thank you again very, very much for joining us. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for the opportunity of being with you on the show. Oh, you are.
Welcome. You take care. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. So go ahead and mark your calendar now so you remember to tune in next week. Oh, wait a minute. No, next week's the 4th of July. I'm not going to be here. That was a lie. Come back on the 11th. (laughs) For more information about me, please visit my website, quantum-wellness-center.com. That's quantum-wellness-center.com. You all find an archived list of past shows the lineup for upcoming shows as well as information about other upcoming events I will be hosting here in the Northeast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Please take care, stay well, and have a wonderful 4th of July. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.